Hey there, and welcome back to another episode of Control-Alt-Azure. This episode is sponsored by ScriptRunner. ScriptRunner is a great solution to centrally manage PowerShell scripts and standardize and automate IT tasks via a graphical user interface for help desk or end users. Check that out on scriptrunner.com. My name is Tobias Zimmergren. I'm here with Yusuf Loine. What's up? Hey, Tobias. For the past couple of weeks, maybe, I've been working from our office one day a week roughly and it feels weird having worked fully from home for the past two three years now and often working remotely before that but previously obviously a lot of people would go to the office to work i find it challenging now to get the time to commute to the office even if it's only about 20 minutes per way for me so it's it's not the time but it's sort of finding the time to commute because you drop the kid off at the daycare at 8.30, then you suddenly are in a hurry to get everything done before nine when all of your team's meetings start. And then when I'm at the office, I make coffee, I sit down, I sort of start working. But then there's somebody else, a colleague at the office, they appear, you start chatting, catching up because you haven't seen each other for a year. And suddenly you've sort of lost 30 minutes of your time. And now it's about 9.40 in the morning and you feel, well, half of the morning is spent. I haven't really gotten anything done. It's fun at the office. It's, it's fun to catch up. But perhaps in the past couple of years, I've, I've sort of moved into a mode that every hour counts and you just have to get stuff done. And now when you go to the office, you feel like, well, I'm not getting stuff done, but it's... <laughs> It's, it's, it's a nice way to spend the day at the same time. And I, I feel it's useful. But that's, that's sort of been top of mind. And I plan on continuing like this. But perhaps one day every two weeks, maybe in the future. We'll see. I can relate to the kind of lost time, as you say. But I never see that as lost time. Because what it is to me is FaceTime value. And the time you get talking to people, uh, standing next to one another, and actually in-person talking, you can do a lot more than over virtual meetings. That said, I've been working remotely for eight years successfully, and I keep doing that. So that's, you know, that's a working setup, of course, but I do miss the, the going into the office and having a chat with the colleagues. So uh, very glad that you can do that. On my side, I have some big updates, uh, some big news from, you know, from my personal situation. I resigned from my former position where I spent the last seven or more years. Um, so I grew a lot in this role as head of technical operations. And I spent a lot of time working on strategy and exercising my leadership skills um, and did that across the organization to drive our OKRs on the technical side. It was a lot of fun and I've learned a lot during these years. So of course, if there's anyone interested in that journey, I'm not gonna talk much about that now. I've got a post in my blog, the link is in the show notes. So when you listen to this, I'm already working at Microsoft, which is a big step for me coming from you know, running my own businesses and then being part of, of leading this startup for the last seven years and now big, going to one of the biggest IT companies in the world. It's a big woohoo moment for me. Uh, I never thought I would land there. So when we record this today, there's still a few weeks remaining until I actually start. So I cannot say how it's been. We're building our summer buffer for the podcast so you have something to listen to during the hot days of vacation. So that's why we record a couple of weeks ahead right now. So I have yet to start when we record this, but when you listen to this, 
uh, I already started. So my start date was uh, July 1st. Super excited about that. But you'll probably uh, hear more about that in a coming episode when I have some experience on um, you know, actually working there for a while. Um, but I'm super, super thrilled to be doing that. And I will, I will actually join you know, a team that works with content across services. So I will work with Azure Architecture Center, well, architected framework, cloud adoption framework, Azure Monitor, a lot of things we already touched on here over the years, which is really exciting, of course, because it, it, you know, it's something that I'm super thrilled about, super excited about. I have a lot of experience from the field about a lot of these things, and now I want to take that further and make sure that you know, millions more can benefit from that. So hoping that this will be a, an extremely nice kind of change um, in, in my career. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. I'm super excited, but let's not talk about more uh, about that now. Today, we have an episode about something that you recently encountered, right? Yes. And, and before we get started on that, super happy for you, definitely. And, and anxious to hear in the coming weeks how, how things start working out for you at Microsoft. Uh, so today, this is a bit of a, a different type of episode, and it's called Adventures in Data, Integrating Postgres with Azure Data Lake. And I wanted to sort of bring up this interesting scenario because I, I feel that this is somewhat useful for many in the, in, the, in, in the audience we have. And the idea is that we have a scenario, and this, this comes from a customer uh, project of mine. We had a scenario, we somehow need to resolve this. And I spent some time to figure out what would be the optimal way for integrating data from one database to perhaps another, and how do we expose that externally. But before we sort of start diving deeper into this one, uh, Toby, you remember we had one episode on Postgres, and we haven't done anything on Azure Data Lake. We perhaps mentioned that a couple of times. But anything that comes to mind for you when we talk about integrations and getting data to travel from one place to another in Azure? Yeah, I mean, sure, there's a lot of different ways to get data to either replicate or, or uh, travel. You can have APIs, you can have custom solutions picking data up, you can have native queries in your SQL servers or PostgreSQL servers like stored procedures and things like that. So of course it all comes down to what is the, the requirements here. Um, but more, more interestingly is I don't have a lot of experience on Azure Data Lake uh, in itself. So if you just take one step back and say, what is Azure Data Lake and why, why would I care? Good question. So Azure Data Lake, technically it's Azure storage account, but you enable one checkbox that enables the Data Lake services on, on top of Azure storage. And that gives you the ability to do hierarchical structure, sort of like directories in the storage account. Because this way you can more easily control, okay, I'm getting data from there, I'm mangling the data, I'm changing it somehow, transforming it, and I'm making it available elsewhere. So the data lake also acts as a sort of repository between systems so that you don't need to build 
direct point-to-point -point integrations between multiple databases. You can use the data lake storage in between that to sort of store the data. And the beauty of, of the data lake storage is that the data doesn't have to be structured. It can be CSV files, it can be database files, it can be all sorts of different types of data, all put into one data lake. And from there, you can, you can extract the data as you see fit. So for Azure Data Lake Storage, currently the version available is generation two. I'm not a huge expert on that one, but I know how to enable the checkbox, how to get the new capabilities in place. And now with this approach, I've, I've put that into, into the central of the architecture so that I can, I can uh, ingest data and I can also extract data from the data lake storage. All right. Okay, so for the overall architecture, uh, I had somebody suggest that, okay, let's make this easy. Let's create a virtual machine and the virtual machine has some sort of custom coded API. We'll configure that API to connect directly with an internal Postgres database. So it's a SQL database with some internal data. And we want to expose that. And I, I did shoot that idea down because I felt, well, perhaps this is not the greatest idea, spinning up a virtual machine for something where we don't really need a VM. And also to directly connect with that with, with the database. Perhaps the database has other stuff we don't want to expose. So the risk of exposing some sort of sensitive data is simply too great. Do you see any other downsides with this first idea? I mean, for spinning up a VM and then put an API on a web server on the VM seems a bit redundant to me, given we have all the architectures and all the platforms available in, in Azure to do that. Um, you could use a, a function app, you could use API management, you could even use uh, you know, the, the web API of an app service. So there's multiple ways to host and protect uh, an API, which does not mean you have to spin up a VM. So I, I don't really see the, the reason for, for running a big VM. But of course, it's like you mentioned, if there's data sensitivity involved and, and you need to ensure the data integrity, then things come, yeah, depending, of course, on those requirements, things might look a bit different. Okay, so you didn't go the VM approach, then what did you do? So the second sort of question towards me was that, well, let's somehow integrate another database with Postgres, perhaps use the built-in capabilities, the replications or some other means from the Postgres to push data to perhaps an Azure SQL, because then we could somehow expose the Azure SQL again, perhaps with an API. So I spend some time on this and what I nowadays do is I often go to Azure Architecture Center to see what sort of readily made architectures they already have that I could still, I mean, borrow and get inspired on and then build on top of those. And there's plenty if you filter based on, on integration and then you start to start searching for, it doesn't really matter what the source system is, it's usually a database. And I ended up with an overall architecture, and this is just for testing really, nothing is in production yet, and this will be more polished 
But the, the top level architecture is that we have the internal Postgres. Then we provision an Azure Data Lake storage on top of the storage account. And then we have the destination database, which is going to be an Azure SQL database, mostly for two reasons. It's going to be Azure SQL. It's very cost effective because the database is going to be fairly small. And we can also auto pause that one. So if we choose to, and we don't need the sustained performance, we can pause that for the weekends or the holiday seasons if nobody's going to access that uh, in the meantime. And it also allows us to build any sort of API, an Azure function, a logic app, web API, or even something in a, in a third-party solution to connect directly with the Azure SQL. And to move data from Postgres to Azure Data Lake to Azure SQL, I'm using Azure Data Factory. And we haven't really talked about ADF, Azure Data Factory, either. Toby, are you familiar with ADF? Are you using that? Or did you ever use the SQL Server integration services back when we didn't really have public cloud yet? Uh, I've not used Azure Data Factory. I, you know, I know a little bit about it. I. I've got no experience with it, but it's it's a way, right, to copy and transform data to another SQL server. So you can kind of crunch data the way I understand it or the way I remember. I haven't read a, a, up on this in a long time. The way I remember is you can you can take data from any existing data source, like in this case, your PostgreSQL. You can kind of crunch that data and transform it into another format and put it into a, a different data database, like a SQL server or another PostgreSQL, whatever you want. And then in this case, then I assume that this other database that you crunch the data and put it, put it into, that's the thing you connect to the API publicly. And then you can kind of decide what data goes into the public API this way also. Yeah, that's exactly it. And what ADF allows you to do, it allows you to create pipelines. So let's pick up data from here. Let's transform or do something with the data and let's push the data elsewhere. There's a lot of functionality in ADF, and I don't claim to be an expert on ADF. I did spend, back in the day, I did spend quite a bit of time with, with the SQL Server integration services, SSIS packages, and also the replication features of SQL Server. So why are we building this now? Why not just use something built in with Postgres? One reason being that this would lay the foundation for an integration platform. So Next week, when somebody comes and says, well, we have this MySQL database, we'd like to expose something or replicate or transform or copy some data. We would have the architecture in place. We'd replace Postgres with MySQL. We'd use the same data lake storage, but use a different container in there. And we'd use perhaps the same or a different destination, Azure SQL or something else. So... The beauty of this is that it's it's very flexible, it's very loosely coupled architecture, and it's fairly cost effective. The ADF is, is the thing that costs the most here. So what we can now do is we can configure ADF to pull a single table, a select number of rows, or everything from the Postgres, do something with the data, and store that in Azure Data Lake storage. The learning curve for me was that when you provision ADF 
the whole authoring of those pipelines happen in the Azure Data Factory portal, which is different from portal.azure.com. So, so you do everything over there, and immediately when you start building the first pipeline, the ADF portal will say, why are you doing this? Should you perhaps use Gits and a CI-CD pipeline to be more professional? And I was like, yeah, let's not make this too complex. Let, let's not go to GitHub Actions or anything like this. Let's just use the mouse and quickly click at the click, get it done and, and prove that it works. But Toby, knowing you, I, I, I felt when I was building the first pipeline to extract data from Postgres and, and to store that in Azure Data Lake storage, knowing you, I felt that when you see a pop-up like this, that yeah, perhaps use the CI-CD pipeline, I know you would just stop whatever you're doing and, and actually you would do what the recommendation is saying, right? <laughs> um, again, it depends, but a CI-CD pipeline is good for a lot of things, but of course it's, if you're doing a one-off or if you're doing a pilot, pilot proof of concept, something that will take you one or two hours to set up, uh, maybe there's no need to do that. If it's something that's going to live for a while, then definitely do it. Like we talked about in a lot of episodes, spend time on automating. The more you can automate, the less human errors will be involved. But if it's a proof of concept, I don't care about it. Uh, then, then I make the decision ad hoc. If it's something that's going to be long-lived and, and this is the way uh, we want to do things, and then yeah, the sooner the better. So you can automate all kinds of things, of course. So if, if I now understand this correctly, uh, you have Azure Data Factory reading data from your PostgreSQL database. It's crunching that data to in, in Azure Data Lake. Then it's getting that data from the data lake and pushing it to a SQL server or whatever destination you want. And the reason for this is not just to have the data in another database, but it's uh, kind of a future-proof idea. Like you mentioned, you have MySQL, you have maybe five other PostgreSQL databases. Maybe you have a SQL server, maybe you have an Azure storage account, whatever it is. Maybe you have different data sources that you want to expose and, and put into the solution that, that the partners or customers can then query from the API. So, so that's what I, one of the takeaways here is that that's one of the benefits that you can crunch data from a lot of different sources and publish them to the kind of same destination uh, or also to different destinations if you want. Uh, and then have your API just read data from that one, the destination of, of the Azure Data Factory. And then if your API knows how to read the data from that SQL server, then it doesn't matter where the data comes from. You can have data coming from storage accounts, from PostgreSQL, from MySQL, from whatever, and whatever format that looks like, it's still going to end up in the, the one unified format in Azure SQL if that's your destination. And that's also one of the benefits that I see then. You don't have to rebuild or implement a, a new SDK to read from PostgreSQL this time or have the API connect to a MySQL this time or whatever. But those resources can still stay privately connected. You can have private links, uh, secured networks. Everything stays within the realm of Azure. The only thing exposed is the API. And then that securely connects to the uh, SQL server that is the des destination of the Azure Data Factory. Exactly like this. And the beauty of ADF is that you can also connect to data sources that are in on-premises or in different clouds. So again, you are sort of building a black box in terms of integration so that you're not exposing anything externally that shouldn't be exposed. 
some of the capabilities in ADF when you're building the pipelines, you are creating essentially an, an orchestration. It looks a bit like what you would build in, in Logic Apps, but looking at the designer, the capabilities are call an Azure function, filter data, do a for each, do a lookup, run a stored procedure, call a webhook or execute a webhook, execute another pipeline. So looking at the designer, if, if anybody in the audience has ever built um, model-driven automations on Power Platform, it looks quite a bit like that. So, so it's, a, it's a bit old school in the sense, but it's, it's fairly clean and clear. So you define your data sets, you define your pipelines, you can test and validate everything, then you can have them running automatically or as triggered or scheduled or something else. The thing that I did like here is that in ADF, when I wanted to connect with the Postgres, it was capable of automatically looking up what instances do you have? Would you like to authenticate with this? Would you like to use Key Vault for authenticating or a connection string or something else? And then when you connect to destinations, it automatically exposes, well, you have Azure SQLs here, which one do you, would you like to use? Would you like to see how the data would flow? So it's, it's really polished in that sense. And we can use the same ADF for both. So for challenges here, uh, ADF pricing. And, and I, I like to look at pricing when I'm using something I'm not that familiar with. Um, have you looked at the pricing for ADF or do you even care about pricing or is everything just, yeah, it's, it's, it's not something you spend your time on. <laughs> Someone else will have to pay the bill, right? Mm -hmm. uh, no, I've, I've spent a lot of time, uh, a lot of time looking at pricing for things, but not for ADF because of course I never used it. So then it was never interesting for me to, to take a look at the pricing for this thing. So on Azure pricing calculator, uh, you can choose between two service types, the data pipelines that we're using or the old school SQL server integration services. And then you pay for orchestrations. It's $1 per 1000 activity runs. Plus data integration is, is uh, 25 cents per hour. And obviously you're, you're not running this 24 seven. So more or less, it, it will cost you $2 a month. That's not problematic. But then it becomes a bit more problematic if you need to run something over an integration runtime. Then it adds up the same as in the, in the regular integration. So if you do not need the VNet integration, then you don't need to worry about those. But then if you need to run a self-hosted integration runtime, perhaps something in on-premises, that will be about triple the amount of cost. So about a dollar and a half per 1,000 runs. But what, when it gets really costly is data flow. So if you need to mangle the data beyond the typical transformations, the, the smallest cluster configuration for data flow is eight virtual cores. And those typically run 24 seven, and that's $1,600 a month for the cheapest one. And if you need memory optimized, that's $2,000 a month. So suddenly you are looking at about $2,000 a month for a compute cluster that does something for you. 
And I, I feel I'd be hesitant to go that way unless I really knew what I was doing. But for building the pipelines, transforming the data, getting data to move from one location to another, it's a couple of dollars a month. And in that sense, the pricing is, is a bit complex when you get to the more advanced features. But for the basic integration needs that I've been using now, I don't really need to worry about the price at all. That's very nice. Taking a yep. look at the solution before. So I'm, I'm inclined now to take a look. There's a couple of use cases from my past because I don't have those use cases today anymore. Um, but there are a couple of use cases from, from my past where this might've been a good idea rather than you know, the building our own custom solution. Now the custom solution was quick to build and it works. But I like this idea, especially that you can, you, you have this, you build an API on the destination database and then wherever the sources are coming from, you can configure that and tell Azure Data Factory, hey, find all my PostgreSQLs, take the data from this one and this one and this one, and this MySQL and this SQL server and this storage account and this whatever, put the data in this format, in this destination, and that's it. And then all the data just becomes available for the API or for the for the user or for the web app or for whatever's connecting to that storage account. Yeah, I, I like that. It's a, this is an eye-opener. I haven't tried this. I might take a take it for a spin to see if it can uh, if it can be beneficial in those use cases I used to have. It does sound it does sound interesting. So very good. It's 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 a fun service ADF itself, and it treats all the databases equal in the sense that it's going to be Postgres or Azure SQL or Cosmos DB. It doesn't really matter, and you can transform the text in between and drop stuff out. So the benefits I already mentioned is the, is the loosely coupled architecture. So you can change the source, the destination, you can mangle the data without needing to modify your API or the source database structure or anything like this. As I said, the Azure Architecture Center, it had a lot of readily made thought out models for this on how do you make it more secure? How do you use managed identity? How do you store the credentials in Key Vault? How do you scale this up? And I, I feel ADF is, is often not a forgotten product, but perhaps something that, that non-SQL or non-database people do not really utilize as much as they could. And it took me about nine, 10 years of working in Azure before I actually had the need use ADF because often you just go, well, let me do a logic app or let me do a function and it's easier for me when I already have an integration runtime that I could really uh, readily use. So this is now for me in testing. Let's see how, how this eventually evolves from here. And I will be publishing this in the future. Um, I'll put in the show notes, I'll put a blog post that I'm fairly certain I will get ready before this episode goes out. So, <laughs> so you will see a couple of screenshots from there. Have a look at ADF, try it out, because for those tests, you don't really need to worry about cost as long as you don't go with the, uh, with the compute clusters, which start adding up fairly rapidly. All righty. I have nothing more to add on this. Toby, any thoughts, any questions? Um, no, not on this topic, but we do have the unexpected question, and I believe it's my turn today to ask you a question. So here's something that I thought about recently when I was discussing something with my kids and my family is, 
what part of a kid's movie completely scarred you? So something you remember like, well, this was a strange thing uh, from a kid movie or, or a kid series or children's show or whatever. That's a great question. Um, I grew up in the, in the 1980s. So I was born in 1977 and I still have fond memories of many of the movies I saw when I was five or 10 years old. Um, so, so one movie definitely, and, and one part of a movie uh, was, was released in 1984 and the movie is called The Neverending Story. Have you seen that? And, and there was a kid, I think his name was Bastian in the movie, and the kid started on a journey of some sort. And, and I haven't seen the movie since, so, so this was about, about 38 years ago. Uh, I haven't seen the movie since, but I do recall that the, that the kid had a horse and they were on, 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 on this journey to do something in a fantasy land. And the, and the horse was named Artax and the horse drowned in the swamp of sadness. And you know, the movie is really good if you have a swamp of sadness in there. And I, I still remember when the white horse was sinking in the swamp of sadness and the kid was crying and I was like, no, no, this cannot happen. Not the horse. But later the kid was able to brought the horse back to life, of course. But that was something that, that, that it hit me that, well, well, people and loved ones and, 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 and animals and whatnot, they can actually die. And I was, how long, how old was I? I was seven years old, so I sort of knew, but then it really hits me. And I recall later sort of going back to thinking about the movie. I'm like, yeah, I don't really want to spoil that memory by watching the movie again. Because what happens when you watch old, old movies again is that for the first 40 minutes, nothing happens in the movie because they were so slow to begin with compared to today's movies. Okay, that's a great choice. All right. I think that's it for my side. Yes. Thank you again for, for joining us. And uh, we'll, we'll cook something interesting up for next week as well. All right. See you then. 